Oh, he was the outstanding architect, I would think, of his period in Europe, uh, certainly. He was recognised as such by a number of people. He had been invited to go to Russia, but he, he toyed with that invitation, and I think to the benefit of Dublin's architecture, he came and settled in Ireland. His work, by any standards, is he was an exceptional designer, very strong and forceful in his design. His buildings are big-scale buildings, very strong statements, must have been quite disturbing uh, to the locations in which they were built at the time that they were built. James Gandon has been a source of great interest to me, even from our, my earliest days as a student when we did some of the measured drawings of the Custom House and the Forecourts as part of our student work in the early years. The kind of work indeed nowadays, which is not done by students, but was very good training for us in, in drawing classical buildings and the, the classical orders and details associated with Gandon's buildings. So even from a very early age as an architectural student, we were aware particularly of the Gandon's impact on Dublin. I myself, of course, have been drawn a great deal of comfort uh, from some of the parallels which were made about the problems which Gandon had about some of his buildings in the 18th century and some of the problems which I've uh, run into are problems of, of opposition and controversy over our, my two major buildings in Dublin, the Central Bank and the Civic Offices. I think it was Morris Craig, in fact, who first pointed out to me that uh, the, the parallel between Gandon's two major buildings on the river side uh, the two major buildings of the 18th century city, that was the Custom House and the Forecourt, and the parallel between the bank, which not quite on the riverside, but dominates that section of the river, and the Civic Offices, of course, which is the largest complex to be built on the, on the riverside, direct, diagonally opposite the forecourt. Um, the difficulties and controversies that I've been involved in uh, have been paralleled uh, in a number of occasions by the the civil riots and disobediences which occurred over the, during the building of the Custom House and the Four Courts. The Four Courts itself was stopped by a legislative enactment and the work was stopped, I think, for two or three years. The changes had to be made or were forced upon the design by the, by the powers to be, that, that be at the time. Uh, I think in the, in the long run the building hasn't um, been disimproved, but I think that um, it's very surprising, I think, to lay people when they look at those buildings today to realise that there were extremely heated controversies and protests and civil disobedience and jolly well near riots, in fact, over both the location and the design and the construction of those two major buildings of Gandon uh, on the riverside. There was also a great deal of controversy over the work he did in the Bank of Ireland. To, to this day, I can never see why, what the controversy was about, but in fact, he was advised, I think at the time, to leave the country for his own safety. 
Fortunately, nothing like that is likely to occur to architects nowadays. But uh, there have been times when, in fact, um, yeah. I have been uh, naturally upset over the controversy which does arise over some of the buildings, and uh, it has been a source of comfort to see that yeah, it's not the first time it's happened and probably won't be the last. I do hope, of course, that posterity will have the same kind of view of what I'm doing now as, as we certainly have of Gandon's work. Architect Sam Stevenson. two years after Handel had been in Dublin and his Messiah was performed for the first time ever in the new music hall in Fish Amble Street. James Gandon was born in New Bond Street in London. When he was very young, he was apprenticed to Sir William Chambers, a well-known London architect. His earliest connection with Ireland was when he entered a competition for a new Royal Exchange building in Dublin. It was the start of a long association with this country. Professor Kevin B. Nolan is current president of Antashka, the National Trust. James Gandon's role in the creation of the modern city of Dublin can, I think, best be summed up in three great buildings. The Custom House, the Four Courts and the completion of the Houses of Parliament on College Green. The Custom House and the Four Courts dominate that great sweep of the river that great riverside walk, which is, even in its present decayed condition, one of the great attractions of the city of Dublin. And again, the Houses of Parliament, notably the great portico of the House of Lords, is, of course, another expression of Gandon's ability to create in stone great works of art. Now, I think one of the fascinating things about James Gandon in the Dublin context is the way in which he can put buildings of high formal quality into the essentially domestic scale of the city. It is this ability to combine to wed the monumental with the domestic, which gives, I think, Gandon's work a special fascination for the architectural historian and, indeed, for the ordinary citizen who has an eye for buildings. Gandon knew how to combine the monumental with the beautiful, to combine stone with the essentially brick quality of the city as a whole. And one can see this, I think, very clearly in the case of the uh, uh, forecourts. Because although the forecourts is now surrounded by relatively shabby buildings, one can still get the feeling 
of what it must have looked like when the keys were intact. Now, Gandon's work has a quality of grandeur, which helps to underline a very important political fact, that when he was building Dublin, it was, of course, the capital of a kingdom. Dublin Castle, with its state apartments, Trinity College, the university of the capital and of the country, the Parliament, the Houses of Parliament on College Green, which I've already mentioned, the Great Custom House and the Great Palace of Justice. These were all functions of a capital city. Gandon's work, I think, will always be seen not merely as superb, balanced, elegant architecture, employing the full maturity of the classical style. He had enormous competence in handling the mass of a building. His buildings we see not merely as great illustrations of what superior architecture can mean, but they will also be seen as a permanent expression of the fact that Dublin in the late 18th century was described, and rightly, as the second city of the empire. Meanwhile, back in London in 1767, Gandon was exhibiting a mausoleum to the memory of Handel. In the same year, he entered the Royal Exchange competition. Although he didn't win first prize, he did begin to develop his Irish links. He soon became involved in a number of important Dublin projects. Morris Craig, author and architectural historian, recently went for a ramble around Gandon's Dublin. Here on Capel Street Bridge we can see a good deal of Gandon's life almost in one eyeful, really, because if we look to the south we see the City Hall, which is the which was the Royal Exchange and is the site of the competition which he didn't win, which his great rival Cooley did win in, back in 1769. Then if we look downstream we see the Custom House, we can see the dome of it in the distance, dominating the entry to the port from the Irish Sea, and that's, that's the job that he did win, most conspicuously, and uh, the job that really brought him here to, to, to Dublin. And about the same distance away, upstream to the west of us, we can see just, from this point, we can just see the, the great drum and the dome of the forecourts, which was where he finally succeeded Cooley and built his great companion riverside building adjoining, um, sorry, not adjoining, I mean um, counterpoising the, 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 the Custom House. The Custom House was a downstream affair, very much the brainchild of people like John Beresford and the gardeners who were developing their estates downstream. And the Forecourts was, I think, perhaps a bit of a, of a, of a trade-off for this. This was a concession, the sighting of it was a concession to the older school of thought, to the merchants and landholders who had land up the river, nearer, in fact, the original centre of the city of Dublin, because here at Capel Street Bridge we're not far from the geometric centre of Dublin, as you look at it on the map, and the historic centre from which the whole city originated. It was only really a few hundred yards upstream from where we are. After the Royal Exchange competition, Gandon stayed on in London. At the time, John Beresford and Lord Carlow were trying to persuade him to come to Ireland. 
Then in 1781 he turned down an offer of court employment in Russia and came instead to Dublin. His first challenge was the new Custom House. And it really was a challenge because he ran into trouble with every imaginable person from the politicians to the corporation to the citizens of Dublin. However, he eventually got started. Well, the Custom House was the first job he did in Dublin. It was the one he was brought over to do. And it differs from all the others in that it's on a freestanding site. The building is on an island site. It has four fronts, all of which are fit to be looked at and meant to be looked at. And that's rather unusual. Apart from churches, you very rarely get a public building which is freestanding in this way. And Gandon made great use of this opportunity. I should mention, by the way, that uh, this situation was quite different from from what it was to be, for example, at the Four Courts or elsewhere in Dublin, that this was on made ground, the river which now flows neatly in front, past the front of it, in those days, or shortly before that time, spread all over large parts of what are now eastern Dublin, around about Pierce Street and so on, and that was reclaimed gradually over a great many years, and they were just finishing reclaiming that part of it when the Custom House was built. So he had to put it on a great raft, he had to sink piles a long way down, and he had to put a raft, a particularly substantial one, under the tower holding up the dome. But uh, the testimony to the soundness of his arrangements, I think, is that the building hasn't settled anywhere. There are no signs of it settling down differentially in different parts, and it stood up very well to its now nearly 200 years, including, of course, the disastrous fire of 1921 when it became a military objective. Anyway, to get back to the, uh, the composition of it, as in many of his buildings, he uses a rather limited number of themes, and he uses them with extraordinary skill. I suppose one can divide them really into three here, three basic themes. The most obvious one, of course, is the, the, the order, the Doric order of giant columns, which are used in the portico facing out over the river in the, on the south front, which are also used recessed four times altogether, twice on the... Sorry... Uh, eight times, six times, four times on the river front and twice on the on the front towards Beresford Place and Gardner Street, that's the north front. And they're set back inside the main wall surface in a very subtle way. That's one theme. The second theme, again very obvious, is an arcade of seven bays, seven windows wide, an open arcade with either windows or niches above it. And that is used in two different ways. On the riverfront, it's used in a secondary role, supporting the great columnar theme and forming the links between the centre and the end pavilions. And the, on the uh, east and west fronts, as I say, the downstream and the upstream fronts, it's used in one case slightly recessed by very little, about a foot, and only one storey high. And on the landward, on the, on the westward front, facing up towards the rest of Dublin, it's used in a two-storey form. And by the way, both those arcades originally were open as the ones on the riverfront are now, and that would have made the point a great deal more clearly. And the third theme is even more subtle, really. It's the theme of a sort of layering of different planes. And you see it at its best and most convenient, really, in the intersection at the corners of the corner pavilions one side of each pavilion is treated with the inset columns and the adjoining side is treated in this layered way. Those are the sides which have the urns standing on top of them. And while I'm on the subject of the urns, one of the chief glories of the Custom House 
is the splendid achievement of the arms of Ireland, great splendid 18th century harps flanked by lions and unicorns, royal supporters. It's the Kingdom of Ireland, really, these are the arms of, which are on all the four corners. I think he got his inspiration there from, probably from uh, uh, the entrance front of St. Peter's, or possibly Versailles, the Palace of Versailles. In both of these cases, trophies of arms are used very tellingly at the ends of the façade. The dome itself is a much slender down, sleeker, much more laid-back version of the Baroque domes that Wren used at uh, Greenwich Hospital 100 years earlier in uh, over the um, Painted Hall and the Chapel of Greenwich Hospital. The actual events are virtually the same, but the whole feeling of the thing is completely different, and they, they really couldn't look more different from each other. It's only when you sit down to analyse them that you realise that they have this very close resemblance. And these three or four themes are dovetailed together and deployed before the reader's eye very much the way that the main themes are in a piece of symphonic music. Gunton came to Dublin at a very exciting and critical time in the city's development. Dublin was a hive of urban planning activity. A number of schemes for the improvement of the city were being talked about. So while the major job of building a new custom house and docks was underway, Gandon was simultaneously working on the forecourts. The forecourts is the second of Gandon's big Dublin operations, and with the custom house, the most conspicuous, with its quayside situation. I mean, here it is in a part of Dublin which used to be nearer the centre than, than it is nowadays. People don't, I think, think of, of that part of Dublin as being very central, but when it was built it was pretty central, not very far from the castle and so on. And here he had a, a situation which very often brings out the best in an architect. He wasn't working with a completely clean sheet. He had um, ousted his great rival Cooley, who had uh, defeated him back at the at the City Hall competition, or the Royal Exchange competition, I should say. And uh, here he had, he had got in, he had outsmarted Cooley, and um, he was incorporating a building which Cooley, in fact, had built. Uh, Cooley died, in fact, very soon. Uh, the building that Cooley had built was really, it was the first office block to be built in Dublin. It was built in the 1770s, and it is the, now the west wing of the forecourts. And he had about 435 feet or so uh, of key between that and the and the uh, eastern end in which to build his building and uh, that constrained him he had to incorporate this and he had to uh, to to provide the the various uh, uh, kinds of accommodation which he was which were in the uh, in the program in the brief 
including, of course, the courts, which are accommodated in this magnificent central block, I suppose the most impressive single piece of building possibly in the whole of Ireland, uh, with its tremendous dome rising out of the centre of it. It was planned in a very rather clever way. There's a big central hall occupying a lot of the space, and off it radiate at 45 degrees, rather curious angle, the courts, so that none of them, in fact, have external walls, and that gave them a very good uh, sound insulation, which was a, a business that people hadn't given an awful lot of thought to before that. And on each side of this block, of course, there are these open courtyards, so that you have a great dramatic contrast between the great solidity of the centre and then these these hollows on either side of it, and finally, out at the end edges, you have the wings. It's a great pity that uh, in modern conditions, in the present day, the forecourt is virtually invisible for something like four or five months of the year, because the corporation, with the best will in the world, but not being very clever about it, went and planted trees on the quay along in front of it. Now, it wouldn't have been so bad if the people who were laying out the intervals at which the trees were planted had taken some notice of the architecture, but apparently they didn't even notice there was a building there. And the trees are simply plonked down uh, at intervals which have nothing to do with the intervals, of the natural intervals of the architecture, and they've now grown up to at least the height of the general height of the buildings, so that during the summer you just can't see it. You've got to come along in the, in the winter when the, the trees are bare and you can see through the trees. It's, uh, it's unfortunate, to say the least of it. So Gandon was working on the custom house and the forecourts at the same time. Two great public buildings designed by a great architect. How much do they have in common? Well, of course, they're, um, they're about the same size, but they do have a very strong contrast in, in feeling, I think, and in, in um, impact. And I once described this, people have made a, bit of, made a certain amount of fun of this over the years and maybe they were right to do so but I still stand by it I think that the custom house has a feminine kind of aspect and the forecourts are rather a masculine one this is not an original observation as far as works of art are concerned I mean, for example it was Schumann I think who said that Beethoven's fourth symphony stood like a slender maiden between the between the eroica and, and, and the second and um, sorry between the eroica and the fifth and um it's everybody knows it's a commonplace of psychology that in the in the mind of all of us there is a male aspect and a female aspect and i think the bold rugged deeply modeled assertive quality of the forecourts with its very deep recessions and its very very pronounced and emphatic dome and its rustication and its um, rough surfaces of granite for example is in fairly strong contrast to the much more uh, smooth and suave feeling of the custom house with its its um, smooth Portland stone facade towards the river and its slender dome and a general air of coolness. I think one would say today, perhaps perhaps the term is, although although somewhat modish, I think it's perhaps usable in this context. There is a very a very distinct difference of temperament, a difference of aspect, I think, between the two buildings.
Very soon after Grattan's declaration of independence in 1782, which was uh, only, of course, by our standards, partial independence, but was real enough to people at the time, the Parliament building, which had been in existence since 1729, became inadequate for the amount of business that needed to be transacted. There was much more parliamentary business in the last quarter of the 18th century than there had been in, at any time before. And in particular, to begin with, the House of Lords had got the jurisdiction which had previously gone to the House of Lords in England, in London, and they wanted to build on an ex extensions to the Parliament House to house their committee rooms and all the rest of it, and generally express their, their newfound grandeur. And those are the, or that is the building which we now know as the East Wing of the, of the uh, present Bank of Ireland, with the great portico that faces east down College Street, uh, more or less on, on Westmoreland Street. And here, Gandon, again, he outsmarted uh, Cooley, who had defeated him at the Royal Exchange. Cooley was all set to get the job, and then Gandon, with the aid of his powerful friends, slipped in and got it instead. The interiors are still largely there. The old House of Lords interior, of course, which dates back to Pierce's time, is still intact, and very splendid it is. And close to it, slightly northeast of it, are very fine interiors by Gandon, which you can see any time you like during banking hours, simply by walking in the Westmoreland Street portico. And there you come to a transverse hall and a flight of steps, and then a very beautiful little circular top-lit hall, which is, in fact, a circular version of the top-lit octagonal hall, which was the principal internal feature on the riverfront of the Custom House. It's virtually the same theme treated in a circular as distinct from an octagonal form and very very well worth seeing and then he adapted Pierce's corridor and so uh, made communication into the central uh, central part of the building he had a scheme for raising the dome of the of the um, house of commons which at that time was not very high and wasn't very easy to see over the top of the building if you go down college street you can of course see very well anything that would be behind the portico. In fact, what you now see are the buildings of the central bank. But Gannon proposed to raise the House of Commons dome something like 25 feet, and it would then have appeared rather splendidly floating above the portico, very much looking very much, in fact, as the uh, forecourts dome does, floating above the portico of the forecourts. The forecourts and the custom house were still being built when Gannon designed Carlisle Bridge. It's hard for us today to imagine that Carlisle Bridge, or O'Connell Bridge as we know it, was a major political statement, but the bridge was in fact the essential link in the easterly shift of the city centre from Capel Street to Sackville Street and Delir Street. O'Connell Bridge is in a certain sense a work by Gandon. Um, it is and it isn't. What happened was that in uh, the late, in, in the 1780s, the Wide Streets Commissioners decided to prolong what we now call O'Connell Street, from Upper O'Connell Street down to the river at a, a width of 130, 140 feet, very wide street indeed. And that is the street that we now know as Lower O'Connell Street. And there had not been any bridges built since the 17th century further down river than Capel Street. But by this time there were two very important fashionable quarters in which people lived, namely the, around Parnell Square and Mountjoy Square and Upper O'Connell Street on the one hand, and around Merrion Square and Kildare Street and so on on the other side. And between those you couldn't communicate until the 1790s. So in 1792, I think it was, Gandon built the bridge which was 
called Carlisle Bridge after the then Viceroy, and is the predecessor of what we know as O'Connell Bridge. It was, in fact, a bridge of normal width, that's to say 40 feet or so wide, 50 perhaps, and it was, as most bridges were at that time, it rose slightly in the centre. In fact, it rose quite considerably, uh, as old bridges do. For example, Queen Bridge, Queen's Bridge higher up the river, Queen May Bridge, as we can call it now. But um, that bridge is no longer there, and yet its successor embodies its design to a large extent. In about, I think it was 1885 or 1886, it was decided to widen Carlisle Bridge and incidentally to rename it O'Connell Bridge. So what they did was they built a nearly flat bridge on each side of it, one upstream and one downstream, and gave them elevations which are a paraphrase of Gandon's elevation. Of course, not an exact paraphrase because it doesn't rise much in the centre. Uh, and they, for example, had to recut the sculptures for the keystones, so those are new. And then when those two bridges had been finished on either side, one above, one upstream, one downstream, then they took away the original bridge in the centre and they floored over and thus gave us a bridge which, rather surprisingly, is slightly wider than it is long. It's the full width of a common street and, of course, it communicates with the Wide Streets Commissioner's other great scheme for the north-south artery, namely the Westmoreland Street and Dolier Street system that leads up to College Green and so up to Stephen Green, Grafton Street and all the rest of it. The last public building which Gandon designed was the King's Inns at the upper end of Henrietta Street. He closed off the top end of the street with a curved screen and gateway. But isn't it a bit strange to find the King's Inns hidden away at the top end of what was once one of Dublin's most prestigious streets? It's in a rather odd position, or looks to be now in a rather odd position, but of course at the time when it was built, Henrietta Street was full of uh, grand residences. You can still see these splendid great houses. And there was open ground, which there still is, a very nice park over to the west of it. The lawyers, in fact, owned some land down on Inns Quay, which is where the forecourts is. And they did a trade, they did a swap. They uh, got this land up here at the top of Henrietta Street. Primates Hill, it was called at that time, because the Archbishop of Armagh lived in it. And um, they did a swap with the government for the land which they had owned down on Inns Quay, where the King's Inns had been from the Middle Ages onwards. And that's how it came to be built. It didn't get started until quite a bit later. There was an awful lot of even more delays than there usually are. And the foundation stone wasn't laid until 1800. And Gandon himself retired in 1808, leaving the completion of the work to his pupil and uh, assistant, a man called Henry Aaron Baker, who was a very capable architect. It's a very peculiar building because it's really two buildings joined by an archway. This archway in front uh, joins a building which on the one on the right uh, is now the Registry of Deeds and belongs to the government. But at the time when it was built, it was the prerogative court, which was where the wills were kept. It was all run by the uh, then established Church of Ireland, which was a Department of State in effect. And the bit on the left, uh, on the left of the triumphal arch, you see the same triumphal arch motif again that we saw at the forecourts. That part, that, that half of it, is the actual King's Inns and contains the dining hall, which is the only really substantial interior by Gandon to survive and is very, very fine indeed. It's a pity that more people don't see it more frequently. It is possible to see it, but you have to arrange to see it and make a good, take a good deal of trouble. But it is very, very well worth it. It's a superb interior and looks particularly splendid on the evenings when they have their their uh, dinners, 
which the uh, law students have to attend in order to qualify. The building is now, what is it, um, well, it's six bays longer than it was originally. There's an extension to the north and to the south. It faces west, so the middle is in, uh, um, when one's looking at it, one's looking east. And the extensions were added in the middle of the 19th century. But uh, with, uh, Gandon's collaboration with Edward Smith in some ways reached its, its uh, high point here because it was Smith who carved those two splendid pairs of caryatids, uh, giant figures who uh, flank the doorways. And they're rather appropriately distributed. The doorway to the left, which leads to the dining hall, is flanked by characters holding, as you see, cornucopias and that sort of thing, and, 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 and bowls and vases and whatnot. Uh, plenty and a bacchante they are, in fact, suggesting uh, not altogether unsuitably that there's going to be a good deal of drinking inside. Whereas the characters who flank the prerogative court entrance, which is now the Registry of Deeds, are security and law, and they carry ponderous books and great big bunches of keys. So it's all rather obvious in a way, and but very, very fine. And uh, it's, a, it's a noble building. The little cupola on the top was added in 1816 by Francis Johnson, but it is to be found in a drawing that comes from the, uh, from the Baker uh, Gandon office in the early 1800s, and there's no reason to believe that it wasn't uh, intended from the beginning. Again, the, the Gandon's habit of uh, having his walls give this layered effect of one layer on top of another, revealing another, is very marked here in the King's End, especially at the corners of his original part of the building. Gandon was fed up with what he considered was the ignorant interference of the Lord Chancellor in the building of the King's Inns. So in 1808 he resigned and at the age of 65 retired to his house in Lucan. He didn't design any more public buildings, but almost as a hobby he spent the next 15 years designing private houses. One of the most famous of those houses is the home of Mr Charles J. Hawhey, TD, leader of the Fianna Fáil party. While he was Minister for Health, Mr Hawhey had the unique distinction and pleasure of working in James Gandon's custom house and going home in the evening to another Gandon work of art. Well, Gandon, of course, built this house, and uh, as I understand the story, uh, Beresford, who lived here, was Gandon's patron, and he commissioned Gandon to build the custom house, and around the same time, uh, Beresford's son was getting married to a girl from France, and he commissioned Gandon to build this house for the young couple, and they called it Abbeville in her honour, because she was from Abbeville in France. This house originally was called Abbeywell, obviously a much older house. I don't know when it was built, but it's marked on the old maps as Abbeywell. Now, when uh, Gandon came to build the house for the young couple, uh, apparently he was so taken with this room, we call it the Malton Room now, uh, he was so taken with this room that he preserved it in its entirety, even though it was a much earlier form of architecture, and he built the rest of his Georgian house around this uh, older room. Now, in order to do that, he had to do some very extraordinary things uh, to keep his Georgian facade uh, intact from the outside and at the same time preserve this uh, room inside with much lower ceilings than normal Georgian ceilings. Uh, he had to do some extraordinary things upstairs, like uh, uh, landings going across windows and so on, but he, he achieved it. Mm. The rooms are very gracious, I think. 
The, by the way, the outside yard, the farmyard or the stable yard is very, very typical Gandon. Uh, I think perhaps even more than the house. Uh, the, the, we have actually drawings in Gandon's own hand of the, st of the stables and the farm buildings. But uh, uh, as to the house itself, uh, well, I think the, the most impressive thing about it is its, is its facade, the very good Georgian facade, the very fine windows, uh, and inside then, in the interior, is this spaciousness uh, and very beautiful ceilings. And despite its appearance, it's not all that difficult to, to live in it and, and uh, look after its upkeep. In fact, most neighbours around here now would say that they are very pleased that uh, it is now a lived-in house, a family home, uh, with our own family here and lots of friends coming and going and so on, particularly the children's friends. Uh, for a long time, it was uh, a bit uh, remote and, and uh, unlived in, as it were. At one time, a, a German industrialist uh, owned the house, and he only came here at odd intervals uh, during the year. But now, it's, if you like, it's back uh, as a lived-in home. And uh, I think that's perhaps, you, you might notice that yourself, I think that's probably the most uh, attractive uh, feature of it now, that it is primarily a home, or a, family, a home in which a family live. After his long retirement, James Gandon died in 1823. During the 27 years of professional life, which he devoted to working in Ireland, he achieved a great deal. He was lucky in many respects during his long life. For example, he enjoyed great political favour. He was, of course, also often hindered in a most frustrating way in his work. But in the end, he was greatly loved. On the day of his funeral, as a mark of respect, his neighbours and tenants insisted on walking the 16 miles from Lucan to Drumcondra, where he is buried. They wouldn't accept any transport. James Gandon, the greatest architect Ireland has ever known, had finally retired. <laughs> <laughs>